2: The silence, a moment out of time I see your face in the shadows, the telltale signs are in your eyes More than I can hold in my hand Running through the gaps like water Aching with a passion inside as the river of design The ashes and the fire in this night inside And the life on
3: you Sawate, I'm your host, Stella And this is Back Row the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 94 for January MMXV Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. MileHigh Comics has an inventory of over five million comics from the Gold, Silver, Bronze, and Modern Age, and over one hundred thousand trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, MileHigh Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are. Backroll Endgame Number no. One and Gotham Academy Endgame Number no. One, both for two dollars and sixty-nine cents. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Also, Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by tweakedaudio.com. High performance noise reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSaves get 33% off their whole order and free worldwide shipping. tweakedaudio.com. Plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Batgirl the Oracle is also a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Well, welcome back from the wonderful and glorious holidays. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's, and you stayed safe, and you're here listening now, so I assume so. I went up to New York City with my parents and saw three different shows. I saw the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular, and that was just, that was wonderful. Uh, If there's anything that, you know, anyone would need to get into the Christmas spirit, that is certainly it, and the Rockettes definitely deserve all of the praise that they get. Just wonderful to watch them. I saw a play, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which I think I probably recommended on this podcast several years back because it is based off of a book, but it all starts off with the murder of a dog and this 15 year old boy with autism basically goes on this quest to find out who had done it and certainly other things are involved with that and that was just wonderful a small cast which is always great and and the set and how the set worked and everything was just amazing and then the musical comedy a gentleman's guide to love and murder which was hilarious and uh, basically the main character finds out that he's in line to receive an inheritance but there is a large number of people ahead of him and what's wonderful is Everyone who plays the Dice Quiff family uh, is one person. One person plays all those members that are in line to get that inheritance. And so someone will get killed, and then the actor will go off, and then come on as another character. It was just great. Uh, and then I ran a 5K on uh, New Year's Day. So it was, it was very nice, and it was just wonderful to spend time with friends and family and relax and try to catch up on rest. And then I went to a wedding in Asheville, North Carolina, and I actually met up with uh, Donovan there. So it was great to see him in between our long separations of San Diego Comic-Con. It's always great to to meet up in the middle of the year. So overall, I think I, I enjoyed this, this very well. No comic gifts or anything, but I did get a moose call, which, you know, kind of like a duck call, but it's a moose call. And uh, I loved that gift. And I just want to go to Maine in prime moose season and use it so that I can interact with moose in the wild. But as I said, I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's and welcome back to 2015, here we are so actually there's a lot going on with this episode, many books to cover to a certain extent and of course actual reviews, a little surprise along the way, but first up I do have four different listener emails first up from Ian, he says Dear Stella, thank you for reading all of my very long emails last time, I appreciate the time you take to interact with your audience Regarding the Stuart, Fletcher, and Tar interview, I appreciate the desire to give the benefit of the doubt and not assume the worst about someone calling Steph's tenure as Batgirl back- as a ripple or echo. I do think that's fair, especially since they immediately followed it up with, I love Stephanie. I'm merely wary of DC writers and editors making statements about Steph following the debacle of war games slash war crimes. And thanks for talking a bit about Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. I think Sean McKeever's first 28 issues are pure genius and Terry Moore's second season was fun if not quite up to the same standard. Yeah, I certainly agree with you there and I think probably when I was talking about I feel like I said like Tom Bedard or somebody else and not Terry Moore. But yeah it's Terry Moore who wrote that second season I certainly agree with you that it wasn't it sort of had the spirit of Sean McKeever's but those really, if, if you're looking for a recommendation those are the ones that, that I I would look for the the mary jane the mary jane homecoming and then the actual uh spider-man Wolf's mary jane next up from angela she says hi stella now that we've seen the first half of the season i was wondering what your thoughts are on the gotham tv show i know it's set probably about five years before babs will even be born but i am for one enjoying seeing the early adventures of james gordon and oracle fangirl that i am i cheered the first time i saw the clock tower This show is probably the most we've ever seen of Barbara Sr. Hopefully she'll have a bigger role in the second half of the season. And I couldn't help laughing when I realized the police captain's name was Sarah Essen. Poor Jim. Your love life is going to get complicated. Hope you have a Merry Christmas, Angela. Well, Angela, I don't know if you are aware of this, but I'm actually on a podcast with Duh, whoa, I blanked out there Donovan and Josh are Called Gotham Chronicle And you could kind of say that it's a weekly podcast But basically what we do is After each episode airs We review that particular episode Have discussions And then I think it usually comes out Friday or that week So if you want to, of course no pressure there uh, But we do talk about that What I think of it, I, I'm enjoying it It's not my favorite superhero show That's on right now I, I think that Arrow is still my number one and the one that I'm, I'm most excited about watching. Though Agent Carter, now that that started, I loved that pilot season. But, but I am enjoying seeing, you know, the, the beginnings, the origins of all these people and sort of the Batman mythos before it's actually Batman. I think my favorite characters are certainly James and Penguin. James just... I, I love seeing him, I, I'm really enjoying that character, and I think those are the strongest stories that revolve around him, and Penguin, I mean, what a what a surprise, really, because I think in the comics, you know, New 52, he was used over and over again, and I, I think we were all getting sick and tired of him, and even before that, sort of a laughingstock villain, and he is just awesome in this, uh, even though he's a bad guy, I, I love him, and, and just... What he does and how much he thinks out some things, or perhaps tests the water, you got to keep an eye on him. My I have a couple problems with it. One of them being, I think sometimes there are too many things going on in the actual TV series. And this is something that I believe, you know, we bring up a couple times in the actual podcast that we do. But because there are so many characters, they try to have so many pieces of stories in one episode. And I think episodes, that the strongest episodes, like I think Penguin's Umbrella was one that we all really loved. The fact that they they cut out a couple other pieces of the storyline and we're just focusing on two really important ones, and I think that way your attention's not diverted and you're able to really develop things. And just sometimes it's just too much, uh, as Josh would say, too budge, too much. And uh, I, I think last week was an example of that. And and I remember just having this weird transition scene where you see Selena on the balcony looking over, and then it cuts. That's all it did. And I thought, what is the purpose of that? I I don't know. Uh, So that's one of my problems with it. The other problem I have actually is Barbara Sr., because I dislike the character. She's doing nothing. She's a terrible character. Josh says she never leaves the apartment, which is probably true, even though apparently she has a job. Then when she goes over to Renee, which I thought was terrible anyways, she never leaves the bed. So I've come up with the fan theory my fan theory i hope that it catches wildfire that barbara gordon the barbara gordon we know is actually the daughter of leslie tompkins and and jim gordon so that's my thought because Leslie certainly has it together and I really took to her as soon as she popped on the screen so yes and Sarah Essen. it's funny because Josh always ships he ships Jim and Sarah Essen. I'm like no no yes in the comics but definitely not I don't know I don't see those two together at all in this show but anyways uh, thanks for writing in Angela and yeah I mean if you have time and you care to listen to me some more which I don't know if anyone would want to do that please Uh, check out Gotham Chronicle. From Terry says, Stella, I first want to say that I love your show. I've been listening to your show for a few years, but I've never taken the time to thank you for all the work you put into the show and the research you put into things ahead of time, which is very evident. Oh, thank you, Terry. I really appreciate that. I recently binged your last few episodes on some long commutes and have some thoughts. First, while I'm certain you are ready for your listeners to allow you to move on from discussing the killing joke, I liked the extended thoughts you expressed a few episodes back while reading a listener email. I, for one, have never thought of the story as asking for sympathy for the Joker beyond any sympathy we might have for the loss of the person he used to be, but that kind of sympathy needn't make us sympathize with the Joker himself. However, my alternate take on the killing joke is that it has always been a question about fate. Do the events of our lives lead to an unavoidable endpoint in almost an Oedipal kind of way? Or in the context of the story, was the Joker fated to become who he was and would similar traumatic losses ensure Jim Gordon would be similarly fated? Luckily for the reader, the answer seems to be an apparent no, since Jim does recover. However, I also think Jim's failure to become like the Joker and to triumph in similar circumstances is what ultimately prevents me from sympathizing with the Joker. Jim Gordon perseveres through those circumstances by strength of will, and we should hold the Joker to that same standard. But even with this interpretation about faith, I don't think the questions considered by the book warranted or justified the treatment of Barbara. Lastly, and somewhat unrelated to Babs, I want to express some disagreement about your thoughts on A Brave New World. While I can see where you and many readers have an aversion to the book, and particularly its ending, and from having read it several times myself, how could you read that more than once, Terry? I think the book deserves a better shake. By trade, I am a professor of political theory and have assigned the novel several times in class, partially because I think it is a good alternative to 1984, with which most of my students have prior exposure, and is interesting in its own right. This is particularly true because I think Huxley's description of a world focused on planned conspicuous consumption and a society passively giving itself over to the powerful state which encourages it is as powerful an analogy about contemporary America, if not more, as 1984 is about our culture of security and surveillance. However, with all that said, I perfectly understand the reasons you disliked it, even without you having mentioned them on the air. Anyways, my apologies for the long email and my thanks for your continuing work on BTS. Here's to the next five years and beyond. Best wishes, Terry. P.S. Sorry for ripping off the title of your Convergence article for my Convergence article. Yes, so I don't know if I talked about that, but I did write an article on TBU about just Convergence uh, breaking my heart and why I don't think it's a good idea to go back to that. And Terry actually wrote something in response to it about how basically it warms his heart. Uh, So certainly you you should read both and, and decide for yourself or, of course, read one of them depending on which thought you most believe in. First of all, it's interesting you bring up fate, and fate is certainly something I I continually discuss as I go into this semester, because I teach AP Latin, and we do the Aeneid, and of course the Aeneid follows Aeneas, and he is destined to do this, and of course the end point is already laid out for him, that he is going to get to Italy, and his descendants will found Rome and things like that but it's really that in between that you don't really know if you're in charge of your own fate if he is in charge of his own fate is he merely being tossed around by the gods and just what the role of free will is so I wonder if that is true if if you know fate is deciding that if the end point was always there that he was always destined to become the joker but the manner in which he becomes the joker is what changes which if that is what Moore is is making a commentary on then that could certainly explain why there are so many different stories and that his life is a multiple choice. Yeah, so it's, it's hard. I think fate, just the idea of it is, is a very interesting and difficult subject to talk about because I think to a certain extent our lives are already planned out for us, but I think that we are, we do have the ability and we do have free will to make choices, but it's sort of already planned. Uh, you know that that gets into certainly more than perhaps many listeners would want to hear me gab on about. You know, it's funny you bring up Brave New World, which no, I did not enjoy that, and I know I'm I'm glad you did point out the the fact that it, it it does ring true with contemporary society. Both of them certainly do, and I do know that that is the reason why the the seniors read it, and especially in this society that is so focused on social media and. I mean texting and Facebook and and Twitter and just being out that really is being conspicuous and being out there and putting your life out there hundred and forty characters at a time I just uh, I don't know I I guess it, it it throws me off just with the the sumptuous behavior, I don't know if I can use sumptuous in that manner, Uh, of the characters and just how they're acting, I I thought was terrible, and and to see that main character, which now I've forgotten his name, at the end undergo the the orgy-porgy and realize what he had done and, and, and kill himself is just, oh my goodness. But at the same time, 1984 had a tragic ending as well, because he betrays, he betrays himself to a certain extent, and then he also betrays the one person that he, he loved. So both tragic. I think I just like 1984 because it is quieter. They're both unsettling, but I think in, in two different ways. But but I'm glad that, that you enjoy it and that you're assigning it to people. And, and uh, it'd be interesting to do a class on it and get that insight because, my insight really is only coming you know from what I'm reading and and other things like that though I did after I read both of those I read Neil Postman's uh Amusing Ourselves to Death which actually I really enjoyed and I think that even though it was it was written a little bit after 1984 it was, I think it was still in 1984 because he waited, but I think that still rings true as well. And finally, from Michael, he says, Salway, Stella, congratulations on your persistence as a podcaster. Very few are dedicated enough to reach a fifth anniversary. I continue to enjoy your insights into the character of Barbara Gordon. Before Christmas, I was browsing iTunes for Batman-related podcasts and found Taking Flight. The episode I sampled featured a guest host called Stella shipping Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. I went back and picked up the previous episode episode about Bat-Girl and listen to both together. I liked your interaction with the regular host. I thought you made a strong case for a long-term friendship between Dick and Babs. I still don't think it should involve romance. Oh, Michael. I have purchased the digital editions of Batgirl 35, 36, and 37 based on your interview with the creators. This Barbara isn't much like the woman I admired pre-crisis. She seems much younger, but she has character and skills. I think I can like her. The art reminds me of the guys at Riverdale High, particularly when Barbara blushes and front of her cute professor. I am enjoying the new experience of reading comics on the computer using Comixology's Guide of View, except for fight scenes when the page layout is important to feel the flow of the action. I'd be interested in your opinion of the digital experience. Have you used the guide of view option? Looking forward to your one hundredth episode. I have read digital comics. I actually bought a Kindle for the purpose of actually having digital comics just because on these road trips I was bringing all of these comics and trade paperbacks and I was like oh my gosh there's all this stuff and you know it just too much to to carry and pack and so this is great because it's one little thing with all the comics that I want to read on comic cat which I use that one there i don't believe there's an option for guided view which is actually fine so i'm just looking at a page at a time but i have used comiXology and i do like that because sometimes pages themselves are spoilers because i think your your eye while you do want to start up at the top left i think your eye is sometimes distracted and goes to some other place which can spoil if something big happens so it's nice that the guided view which i hope I'm correct that the guided view is the one panel at a time situation. They're just focusing on what's going on at that panel. But I do agree that bigger things, it's a little, it's a little troublesome. Uh, well, that is it. Thank you for writing in. As always, I, I do accept longer emails, as, as as many you know listeners and writers in can uh, attest, since I do read them on there. Uh, as Angela has learned, and she thankfully put in the subject, you can read this on air if you're ever worried about what I'm going to put on there, because basically, if, if you don't tell me not to put something on, then I will read it. So, you know, maybe it can be like Marvel and say okay to print, but yeah. So, if in the subject you say okay to read or do not read, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll be good. We'll be good. So, yeah, if you have any listener comments or emails, be sure to write in backworldoracle at gmail.com. Okay, now on to the reviews. So, there are actually five one, two, yeah, five books here that I'm going to at least talk about only two I'm going to review but I did at least want to have some sort of sequence so it's Manhunter and we ended with Manhunter 14 was in the the Janus directive so Manhunter 15 which I am not going to review because uh, Oracle does not appear w- the title of the story was born under a bad sign the cover date was July 1989 and we revisit some some scenes from Jans directive and it's got Mark facing off against Mirage this new villain who is defeated by Mark but Mark actually is very seriously injured which will pop up again in the issue I will re- review Manhunter 16 which I'm not reviewing and the title of the story was Outlaw the cover date August 1989 Mark goes after an escaped prisoner John Henry Martin I also thought it was going to be Steele there who was framed by, well, irons, you know, John Henry Irons, who was framed by various elected officials, especially Haskell Weckler, for killing a police officer. Manhunter does end up trying to help John, but John ends up killing someone and jumping off of a bridge into a river below. At least Weckler is found out regarding his illegal activities, so a bit of a tragic issue there but this here we go manhunter 17 i'm actually going to review this one okay so the title of the story is turf cover date september 1989 plot kim yale and john ostrander script kim yale pencils grant Miam. inks john statima and colorist juliana ferreter James, who is Mark's brother, drives Mark to Gotham City and broaches a delicate subject. Namely, the family wants Mark to give up his manhunter bounty hunting job following his recent stay in the intensive care unit, which was after the Mirage fight. Mark refuses and, at the Regent, changes for a party honoring the opening of a nationwide series of homeless shelters sponsored by the Wayne Foundation. James was invited because his law firm drafted the nonprofit documents. Tim Melker, or Melcher, owner of the Gotham Wildcats, is concerned that Victor Gover, who was recently revealed to have used steroids, had been involved in the shelter's public relations campaign. Tom makes a comment to Bruce Wayne about superheroes using steroids, which prompts Mark to angrily enter the conversation. The conversation doesn't get far when Victor Gover violently confronts Arthur Brockett regarding his canceled contract. While Mark confronts him physically, Bruce summons the guards who escort Victor out of the building. Bruce ponders Mark Shaw and his pass and finds he cannot trust him yet. Hours later, Victor returns to his family's home and checks on his supervillain costume. The next day, Mark and James in a restaurant, and Bruce Wayne in his mansion, read the newspaper of the previous day's event. They both do research. Mark via information sent by Oracle and Bruce on the back computer and independently come to the same conclusion. Victor Gover is the new sports master. Sportsmaster's first outing apparently occurred two days after the public announcement of Gover's steroid use. Mark makes a visit to Gover's parents, who direct him to Coach Brockett's, where he has directed Melcher's townhouse. As Manhunter, Mark stakes out the townhouse in which Melcher and Brockett argue about the Gover situation. Gover throws a javelin, with his jersey wrapped around it, through the window, then follows immediately afterwards. He takes the two down, drags them through the front door, but Manhunter is waiting and pulls Sportsmaster away from the men. Sportsmaster takes Manhunter down with a punch, but Batman arrives. Batman and Manhunter then brawl, while Brockett and Melcher race back inside and Sportsmaster follows. Sportsmaster drops Batman with an exploding discus. Manhunter uses his baton to enter through an upstairs window, but Sportsmaster pins him with a javelin. Batman enters through the skylight and Sportsmaster throws another discus at Brockett. Manhunter dives in the path and deflects the discus outside while Batman captures Sportsmaster. Batman is grudgingly satisfied that Manhunter is on the side of angels and we've Sportsmaster with him so he can claim the bounty. But Manhunter got the gist of Batman's real thoughts and decides that Gotham City should probably be left to Batman. Okay, lots of stuff going on. I do like how Batman is involved, so I feel like it does because of the scanty appearance of Barbara, well, Oracle. It it does make more sense to have this issue in here, at least. So starting at the very beginning, I do really like the concern that James shows Mark uh, for his lifestyle. I, I think it's really interesting and, and a difference that we see Mark's family knows of his extracurricular activities. But, you know, it's apparent that Mark, of course, makes no secret of it as he announces it at the party, in fact. But I feel like this could actually create a problem and could be really dangerous. And I, I think part of this is the reason for what happens in the, the next story arc and the next couple issues. I like the panels when Mark and Bruce first meet with the background of their respective IDs behind them in blue. And this also happens in later panels when they're investigating. The pages split up, and the heroes in their investigations are parallel to each other, and you can see them working back and forth, which is great. And there are a couple times where their faces are cut in half, which sounds violent, but uh, Mark's face, you know, on the left, and then Bruce's on the right. So steroids, I, I, I think... This story comes at an interesting time in, in current news, what with all the controversial stories that we have heard about several athletes. And, and you know, this isn't the first time, of course, it, it's happened in the past, but I, I just think it is ironic how one character says that steroids are going to be used by every athlete soon enough and to make it okay. And, and he even says that, hey, man, you've got this... He doesn't say a gold mine, but you've got this great guy because he's using steroids, and he's a meta human he's got some abilities and I just think to myself how how is that fair and and what kind of sporting competition is that if someone has these these two abilities over everybody else I think this this issue also almost highlights the the greed of the sports industry just the the evil side of it and and how greedy it seems. I think not only on the managerial side, you know, risking safety for glory. We've seen, I think, news stories about how people having concussions or being injured and coaches telling them to go back out there and, of course, managers and just how cutthroat that can be. But, you know, the athletes, I think, sometimes for me, it, it seems like, they're more concerned about money than the game, you know, even if they're not getting a big enough check. And I just think if you are if you are gifted enough to, to play well and you're blessed enough to be on a professional team, should you not be happy with whatever you have? And should you not be you satisfied so long as you can get by and, and make a living on that. I just think, you know, if I could play a professional sport and I just loved it, I think that love would be enough. And as long as I could get by on whatever I have, I, I wouldn't need an excess. But uh, but that's perhaps just me. I'm sure no professional athletes listen to this podcast. But if you do, please write in and tell me your thoughts. Sportsmaster. I, I think it makes sense that Victory become uh, this type of villain. But, and I do think he he seems more dangerous than the original sportsmaster i feel like whenever i've seen him perhaps with the exception of young justice he seems a bit of a b or a c quality villain not as not as dangerous and more laughable but may, perhaps i'm reading different things than i than i should be reading So Oracle here is just a computer in this one and she's providing information and not really much to talk about there, just the fact that she is present and she does seem to have some sort of relationship with Mark that he does trust her enough to ask things like this. And it's funny that, you know, Oracle is, you've got Oracle working with Mark, but Batman has not yet had an interaction with Oracle. Part of me believes this to be because, number one, she probably doesn't want to deal with him right now. Probably so upset. And number two, uh, she probably believes that she, he doesn't need any extra help because he does have the Batcomputer. But we'll see when they first interact. It's interesting to see Batman and Manhunter go up against each other, but it does rub me the wrong way. Uh, One that Mark stops Batman and says it's his collar, so it seems he's more concerned about the bounty than other people's safety, which changes later on, luckily. And two, that they decide it's the best time to fight while others are in danger, and this is something that always upsets me. I mean, resolve your personal issues at some other time, please. In the end, they never really worked together, did they? Each fought Sportsmaster when the other one was incapacitated. And I was surprised at the end that Batman gave Manhunter the bounty when it was in his town and, and just his ethical code. I, I feel like he was already upset at it. He was graying his teeth. Uh, and definitely, you know, what he thought of him, that he may have been impressed with him at the party, but he said he, he wouldn't trust him. And I think perhaps he, he may trust him to a certain extent, but there's still, he would never be allowed in his, his inner circle at the very end Batman says he doesn't do it for the money and there's a small panel of somebody's hand and perhaps shaking I've actually I've stared at it for quite a while and I'm not really sure what it's actually doing but I think it it's Mark's hand and and I just wonder if perhaps what Batman said shook him up you know I don't do it for the money overall an interesting story uh which I think rings true today so it's I, I like those sorts of stories, and I wouldn't call it a team-up, and that's, I think, where the majority of my problems lie. It's also interesting to think that Mark was actually later approached by the Order of St. Dumas to take up the mantle of Azrael, but since Michael Lane was the new one during uh, Batman R.I.P., it is queer, he turned them down, so he could have actually potentially worked with Batman, though, perhaps a different one. Another interesting thing I thought while reading is during the party that Bruce Wayne goes and gets his security guards to escort Victor out. And I thought, huh, this is an interesting Bruce Wayne to see someone that doesn't dash away but uses, I guess, the means that he has to get rid of him. I'm going to give this issue 7 out of 10 power batons next up another book i'm not reviewing but it is manhunter 18 part one of saints and sinners which will be a i think about a six issue story cover date 1989 and this actually connects back to manhunter 4 several months ago after mark has defeated dumas and dumas is dead so who is this dumas i bet you were wondering and i was wondering so he has the The ability to morph his appearance, muscle and bone, to make him look and sound like anyone he wishes. If he loses concentration, however, his features run and his face looks like putty. He's basically, he actually looks like the Toxic Avenger kind of, but I feel like he is very close to Clayface. At some point in his history, he chose to use his powers to become an assassin in the Far East. He develops a code that requires him to complete a contract once accepted no matter what and he had a contract to take Manhunter's mask which is how the two ended up meeting and Dumas getting killed. So after this, after he is killed, Dumas's body is studied in the hopes of replicating his powers a serum is created and a Mr. Mason plans on using it on himself to get revenge on the CIA but ninjas attack and Mason injects one of them before he is killed which is a little strange. Two months ago from this present storyline, this ninja assumed the identity of Dumas, number two. And so in the present, Mark fights the grasshopper and goes home to find out that there is another Dumas. And a friend of the Shaw family who witnessed this Dumas is Kazu. And Kazu takes the Shaws to Tokyo for safekeeping, but arrives at his house with his father slain. So then we go into Manhunter 19, Saints and Sinners Part 2, Shadow Warrior. Cover date November 1989, plot, assist, John Ostrander, script, Kim Yale, pencils, Grant Miam. inks John Statema, and colorist Carl Gafford. Dumas thanks Kazu for his loyalty and cunning in bringing the Shah family to Dumas under the pretense of offering them protection. Only James falls for this deceit and Kazu attempts to avenge his father's assassination, but Dumas drops him quickly and prepares to kill him. But Ryu intervenes, suggesting Dumas keep Kazu alive as a majority of the followers are only loyal to the Hazegawa family. Ryu suggests Dumas make Kazu his messenger to Mark Shah and Dumas agrees but cuts off part of Kazu's little finger as punishment. The Shahs are taken prisoner. It is now four days since Kazu's visit and Manhunter fruitlessly continues his hunt for Dumas. He has been using himself as bait waiting to confront Dumas on his own turf but Kazu finds him and tells him what has happened in Japan. Mark makes flight arrangements to Tokyo and sends a file marked in case of death to Oracle. Back in Tokyo, Kazu tells Dumas that Mark Shaw is coming for him. Ryu brings a message to the Shahs and takes out the guard. Manhunter arrives, slipping a note to his family, telling them to trust the tea bringer, and Ryu leads them to safety, telling them that Mark is distracting Dumas so they may escape. Manhunter and Dumas have a long battle with Dumas fatally cutting Manhunter's torso. Before he can die, however, Dumas knocks away the Manhunter mask to find it was Kazu dressed as Manhunter. In his dying breaths... Kazu tells Dumas that the Shaw family is free, those loyal to Dumas are dead, the estate is destroyed, and that Mark Shaw is honor bound to defeat Dumas. The building explodes behind Dumas, who swears vengeance on Mark Shaw. So, lots going on in this. So, it's unclear to me the entire time whether Kazu actually betrayed the Shaw family or not. If he did, why was his father killed, since he was obviously following orders of Dumas? If he did not, why wasn't he killed in part one, when he sees what happens with Dumas killing his followers in a tent? In any case, he helps Mark out because of his father's death. So I think that part, at the very least, everything that happens after is genuine. It's interesting how the Shaw family seem less concerned than most would be in the same situation. They're, they're a little more collected in everything. And even the father is sort of stepping up and saying things and, and his brother and, yeah, I don't know. And, and, the, and the father seems to know a lot about Japanese moral codes. So because I've not really read Manhunter. I do wonder if there's some history there and uh, his father and how much he knows and his experience with these sorts of things. Speaking of Japanese moral codes, not only are we in Japan, but we have certainly soaked up much of the culture in this book. And I think it's due most likely because the serum from Dumas Number 1 was injected into a ninja. I felt like we could have replaced Mark Shaw with Wolverine and the story probably could have still worked. Another moment I'm confused about is when Ryu comes to bring tea. And I think perhaps this question would be answered if I were to have read the rest of the story. But is it really Ryu? I did wonder. Is it Mark as Ryu? I can't tell, mainly because I don't know his motives. Then he kills someone. And uh, I guess Mark doesn't do that so easily. So perhaps it really is Ryu. I mean, Mark does. It seems like people do die. But I, I feel like he's not a cold-blooded killer. And then that guy... That Ryu actually kills looks just like Jamie, which it obviously cannot be. But you know it does beg the question as to why Dumas number two is having all these white people, these gaijin all around him, uh, which seems very strange and something that would potentially go against his belief system and the culture. I was totally fooled at the end, which I guess will be a theme of this episode because I was fooled later on, too. Uh, And really thought it was Mark fighting Dumas and getting fatally wounded. I thought, oh, no, what's about to happen? But what a shock that it was Kazu. So I guess that he loses his life to make up for his initial betrayal. I think it's an okay story. It definitely reads like just a part of a larger story that perhaps is killing time or, or just making its way along. I just wonder if they were able to save some surprises for the rest of the arc, because I think this Kazu thing was a really big moment, uh, and to put that off in issue two, and then have, you know, four left, you wonder what they saved. And just where is Mark right now? Because the Manhunter that slipped the note would have been Kazu. I wonder if he met up. Did he, how did he get this? Did he have the costume before he came back to Tokyo? Is Mark... In Tokyo, he brought that costume. Does he have another costume? All these things. So I just wonder where Mark is right now. Uh, And of course, those questions could be answered reading the other issues, I do not have them, however, so if you are a fan of Manhunter, like we had a listener that answered many of my suicide squad questions, which I'm so appreciative of if you are a fan of Manhunter would you be able to answer some of those questions I did read a little bit more, but not all of the the issue synopses and things like that for the rest of this but uh, this is actually my last coverage of Manhunter and this arc is actually the end of Manhunter's career as well, because in issue 24 he does lay down the Manhunter identity Uh, of course he does end up defeating Dumas don't know how it happens but it does happen so he lays down he decides he's had enough basically in in almost an homage to I believe it's Amazing Spider-Man number 50 right where uh, Spider-Man walks away Spider-Man no more and he kisses Sylvia as well so I think, you know, f- nice little shipper there moving on with his life. And he takes a job at Southern Cross Salva- Salvage Corporation. So Manhunter Volume 1 ends at Issue 24. Uh, the only appearance of Oracle is, again, a computer. And, again, like the, the other issue I reviewed, not much to talk about there. With the exception of, I think, perhaps, it shows the, the great level of trust that Mark has for Oracle in the short time that he has known it him or her because he's given this with obvious instructions in the case of his demise and I mean to who he doesn't give it to his well his family is taken but i mean not to sylvia or anyone else that he could potentially work with a lawyer or somebody but he gives it to oracle so i think that's a big thing just that i think she's biding her time and and as or she or he the oracle it is biding its time and just being present and and gaining allies as it goes and as it helps people out, I think more people would begin to trust it. So there you go. So this issue I'm gonna give six out of ten power batons. And that's it for the vintage half of the episode. When I come back I will review Batgirl thirty seven and Gotham Academy number three. But first we have Zias' Radio Hour featuring Warrior by Havana Brown. Check you guys soon. enjoyed that that tune that hopefully got you hopping it's funny because i'm i guess I'll say it now i'm Hoping to run a half marathon in April, and so and and I think I talked about my IT band issues last year, around this. No, I guess it started in February when I was gearing up for the 10 miler, and so the summer I, I did a couple like two miles, but it was hurting in two miles, and I was just getting frustrated. I thought it's enough, so I did not run in the summer, doing lots of stretching and just gym, other uh, cardio stuff cycling and things like that and then September 1 started off with starting you know two miles and I was sure to to run you know two miles and then as my long run I guess and then you know the next week be sure to double that and then move on so I've been increasing so my long run right now is at six miles no pain knock on wood thanks be to God and I'm up to about 15 miles a week running but so the thing is it's, it's all coming back to this song I promise the thing is that when I enjoy listening to to things when I'm running unless I'm running with someone which is always enjoyable to to be able to talk to somebody but if I'm listening to something I like kind of pump up music and things to to get me going and when you're running it's about an hour you know depending on what your pacing is and I you know I'm just doing it to get the mileage done I don't need to go super fast so let's just say an hour, and you go through songs really quickly, and then, of course, you're repeating them over and over again, so I've gotten into Googling, you know, top uh, songs played at clubs, because, you know, they always have a higher BPM count, and then, you know, I go through and figure out which ones I enjoy, and that one, actually, Warrior, was one that, that I found, and so it is on one of my running mixes, so... Yes, So there, see, it did all come back. And I thought, you know, I had been thinking about that for a while. I thought, while reading Backworld, that this is really, I think, uh, epitomizes... Who she is, and just you know, don't drag me down. Just like "Roar," I think by Katy Perry is is a good one, especially with what's going on in Backroll and everything. So here we go, Backroll number thirty-seven, Double Exposure. Writers Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher. Artists Babs Tarr. Breakdowns Cameron Stewart. Colorist Maris Wicks. Pop star Juniper Vega has been robbed, and Batgirl appears to have helped as the five bat-masked women speed recklessly down the street, drinking and driving. Suddenly, a device thumps onto the hood of their car, bringing it to a stop as the real Batgirl swings down and plucks the imposter from her seat in the car. Angrily, Babs complains that this girl is hurting her reputation, but she is prevented from catching her by the other girls who distract her with a Molotov cocktail, allowing the imposter to escape. Angrily, she vows that they at least will go down. Afterwards she pays a visit to Kadir at Burnside College, noting with disgust how excited the girls were to be captured by her. Still, the imposter worries her more. Kadir suggests that she would be better off getting in front of a camera while she performs saves and captures to show that she's the real girl. Ignoring the suggestion, she thanks him for the EMP grenade she used on the car, and he grins, offering her another gadget, a phone case that can withstand the stress of vigilantism. He warns her not to use the camera on civilians because the flash is blinding. He admits said the imposter is active on social media and seems to be in it for the fame and there's even an art show celebrating her this weekend Barbara invites all of her friends out to the show and so she, Dinah, which is funny Dinah's being lumped in with a friend name Alicia and Frankie step out of their cab dressed to the nines for the hip dagger type show In the lineup, Bab sparks Nadima and Jeremy from school who are stuck in line trying to get tickets while Barbara managed to score tickets from Frankie through Hook Blushing, Jeremy comments that he's taken aback by how Barbara looks dressed up like this, and embarrassed, Barbara excuses herself to rejoin her friends inside. Seeing the artwork of the artist's dagger type, Barbara is mortified by the strangely sexualized depiction of a woman dressed as backroll. Naturally, Donna thinks it's hilarious. Grumpily, Barbara responds that the model is obviously the one impersonating her, and obviously narcissistic. Frankie appears and drags him over to a depiction of Batgirl sitting in a wheelchair and comments that as a person with a disability herself, she feels it speaks to her. Barbara herself, though, is speechless. After the event, Batgirl returns to the gallery to confront the curator and demand to know where dagger type is. Startled, the woman explains that he remains anonymous, sending his work to her via Omnicab. So, Backgirl attempts to hack Omnicab's records to trace cabs that went to the gallery. Through this, she locates an address where Daggertype keeps his studio space and discovers a book of American Sign Language inside it. Thinking back, she realizes that the model was posed to deliver a message in ASL, below Burnside Bridge, 10 p.m. So, Barbara waits at the bridge, trying to get a hold of Dinah for backup. She is interrupted and leaving a voicemail for her by the imposter and his allies, or, sorry the imposter and her allies. Angrily, Batgirl complains that this imposter is done making her look like a fool. Derisively, her opponent responds that she's making Batgirl famous, and the spotlight is wasted on her, so she intends to kill her and take her place. Barbara attempts to unmask the imposter and is surprised when the mask comes away along with a wig. Gasping, she looks to see that the imposter Batgirl is actually, bum bum bum, dagger type himself. He pulls a gun, forcing her to dodge the bullet by leaping off of the bridge into the water where she loses her own cowl to her annoyance. Unfortunately, Kadir can't get her a new cowl in time for Backroll to crash Dagger Type's next event, the revelation of Backroll. The next night, she makes her way into the event theater in plain clothes as the PA system announces that tonight... The audience will witness the true identity of Backroll. The curtain rises on Dagger-type, who claims that he is the backrow Burnside, prompting expressions of confusion and disbelief from the audience. He responds with rage, pulling a gun and firing blindly into the audience, causing a stampede. Only Barbara runs toward the stage, holding her new phone up and shielding her eyes as she blinds Dagger-type with the flash. He recognizes her voice as she pins him to the floor and demands to know why he's been impersonating her and why he used the image of her in the wheelchair. He explains that someone paid him to, a patron who promised fame and fortune. She gets no more answers before the GCPD arrives. A young officer takes her aside, recognizing her as the commissioner's daughter. He introduces himself as Liam and admits that he'd like to see her around some time. And blushing, she comments that she'd like that. Later, as the sun begins to rise, Barbara has Dinah help her take a photo for her own pictograph account so that she can control the perception of backroll. okay so first off there's the fake juniper vega again with a little with something plain. which how ironic that they're listening to that after they had stolen from her but this time at least i didn't google it so this issue certainly starts in Medias Race, in the middle of things, with the heist having already happened and this back imposter already established, so really wasting no time and diving right in. I I think it's fine. I, I think for a moment it is difficult to orient yourself. Everything that had happened is given in speech, so you just gotta go with it. But it's good, I you know, not wasting time and explanations and everything, and leave it for more important things. It's fine. The group of girls, I think, also look like girls that could be legitimate heroes out on the town. I mean, think back to that. Is it Brave and the Bold number 33? Where, is it Supergirl, Batgirl, and Wonder Woman who go out and have fun and everything? And I think we've seen other heroes kind of go out and and have fun. And just seems like if you want to go out but not in your full costume that you could do this. So it seemed pretty legitimate. It was weird seeing two Batgirls fight. It reminded me of The Parent Trap. And I also felt like I was peering through the looking glass at two different generations of Batgirl, as the bedazzled one certainly has echoes, I think, of Yvonne Craig. It's interesting how this entire issue is very much about reputation. And I'm not sure how I feel about Batgirl being so concerned about a positive, uh, or just about her reputation in general. I mean, of course, no one wants a negative reputation, but uh, I would rather Batgirl just shake it off, you know, insert Taylor Swift's song here. Cause the player's gonna play, 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 play and the gonna hate hate hate, 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 baby, I'm just gonna shake, 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 I shake it
0: off, I shake it off, shake it off, shake it off, shake it off, shake it off,
3: She should shake it off and deal with whatever, no matter what, like Spider-Man. I-, I think she should be more concerned about doing her job, but of course she does have to unmask the duplicate, right, so she doesn't get ruined. Frankie and her crutches. Uh, this is very interesting. I would almost say it's an inconsistency, but I'd have to, I would have to ask. Uh, the creators about this this is the first time that she's really using them out in public and I even went back to 35 and 36 and while you do see them in her room and if you think about it and and look at some of these panels when she's getting up you can see her using different means of getting up going downstairs you saw her using the the railing, things that you would probably do. But this is the first time. I mean, they went shopping, remember, in the previous issue. This is the first time that she was out and using them. And I do wonder what that's about. There is some speech about, you know, I'm doing better, Alicia, but dot, dot, dot. So perhaps she had some sort of relapse, or maybe it was a tough time at PT. Not sure. Something that I could certainly ask about. So I don't know if you guys know this, but Dagger type is actually a play on the daguerreotype which was the first publicly announced photographic Process and the first to come into widespread use during the early 1840s. So the distinguishing visual characteristics of a daguerreotype are that the image is on a bright, ignoring any areas of tarnished mirror-like surface of metallic silver, and it will appear either positive or negative depending on the lighting conditions and whether a light or dark background is being reflected in the metal. And from certain angles, the image cannot be seen at all. So that was nice that they did a little play on that. The art scene is disturbing, mainly because it, it makes Batgirl a pin-up girl to a certain extent. And it's also disturbing because Dinah finds it amusing. And I feel like the level of her spiteful attitude is beyond what I can take now. There's a certain extent where you can be okay with what happened, though I would more be... Well, everything went up in smoke, so that's terrible. I, I do think that Batgirl was also in the right. They're both right to be upset with what the other person did, but this, I think, is not good. You should recognize when it's gone too far. When you're angry at someone, it kind of starts to eat you up unless you get over it. So I feel like bad things are about to happen. Let's talk about this wheelchair image. So it's something I've seen before, and it's actually similar to an image that the BTO uh, Facebook page uses. I think it's something that gives a big clue to the big bad, because it has to be someone who knows of Barbara's past and her, her, her past debilitation. So uh, I'm going to talk about this later, but I was very shocked to see that, I, about as shocked as Barbara Gordon was. I like that the images at the gallery actually had a purpose to them, had signs attached to them, but I wonder how likely it is that Babs would just happen upon the ASL book. Let's talk about the dock and what happened there, especially Dinah not coming to the dock. Her texting that she needs backup and her calling and not being picked up Are a big problem for me which I will again like I said bad things are happening I feel this spiteful is this spiteful attitude is getting to a level beyond which it should be if someone could potentially be in danger should you not back that person up especially when you were at one point in time on her team I think that you can be angry at a person but still want to be by their side and protect them or help them from being killed So uh, this is a big red flag, a big, big, big red flag for me. Uh, The bedazzled BG, as I like to call her, Batgirl, and the hench women remind me of something from the 60s TV show, you know, where you'd have the boxers go around, you'd have their different names, and they would basically follow the theme of whatever the villain was. The reveal. So I was certainly shocked at this reveal, and at first I was actually really confused, because I thought to myself, wait a minute, wasn't Dagger a man, and then I had to flip back, and I go, oh, okay, he was a man, oh, okay, so basically, yeah, he was a man dressed as a woman, and and I certainly got a flash of Blowfield in Diamonds Are Forever when, you know, he was dressing up as a woman as well, I am going to talk about that later, so don't worry, I'll, I'll get back to that, the the crowd reactions, I, I think, at Dagger, once he is revealed, uh, I think were very interesting. I just wonder if he truly believed he would be accepted as the Batgirl of Burnside because everyone is in. They don't believe it for one second, which is actually interesting because, I you know, you wonder why they don't believe it. Just that, is it so unbelievable because it is a man? Is it unbelievable because all of a sudden Batgirl is going from no publicity to being over the top publicity Uh, i i do wonder about that just why was it so um why why didn't it work the crowd but on the other side why did he think that it would that that also seems like a stretch and with that you know as i was reading it, it it just plays like a movie where someone is saying something that no one follows or that they're just going off on some sort of soapbox and you just, you feel embarrassed for them. And I recently, well, in the summer, I watched a movie called The Circle Unbroken. It's something like that. It is a foreign film and it has folk music in there. It basically revolves around the, the death of a child and how the, the parents get on after that. And there is one moment where the the character on stage they're singing a song and then there's uh there's a moment of you know music and he starts talking about stuff and at first the people are kind of into and then he's like really starts going all out and it's like too much and that's when you know you start getting embarrassed and the, the life is kind of backing up and people are confused that's you, you kind of you start feeling uncomfortable for that person and and I I felt <laughs> uncomfortable as well once this was going on and he's like why don't you believe that I'm girl? I'm glad that each time Dagger has brandished a gun which is twice Babs has not flinched and she actually goes into action and I love that I love that while it may be Something in her past that she maybe she's not gotten over it necessarily, but it's something that she does not let hinder her current objective. Something that was interesting, and and I'm not sure. You know, I I think it could have been played either way. Babs comes in street clothes to the reveal, and I almost wonder if knowing. 'Cause it's different I think than the arc alley. I think she had more opportunities. If knowing about this, why didn't she come dressed as as Batgirl and hide in the eaves? And it, it wasn't really all because, you know, she lost her cowl. I, I just think I don't know. I it's it's good to see Babs out and, and fighting for herself. But you do wonder is that the best situation for that uh, and you know she could have taken him down at some point and also she would have been right out there and taken down you know said like you're an imposter and then everyone would have seen that so her reputation would have been safe. Babs flirting with Jeremy and Liam I don't know right now if I trust this Liam I think this is very convenient uh, he could be a bad guy who knows but it is nice to see Babs at least showing interest in others even if they aren't Dick Grayson but not throwing herself at them. And I think that's, I think two is enough right now, so it's not established anymore. But uh, they're and they are two different sides of her life, if you think about it, her academic and her crime-fighting life to a certain extent. So it'll be interesting to see how this develops. And it's just nice to see her out and about, rather than randomly hooking up with people that I don't really see any connection with. Babs and her social profile. This is something, I was actually thinking about this as I was sitting in church this morning which is funny (sighs) i'm just wondering if this is something that she should be so concerned with and and even having you know a page i don't want her to get like booster gold I, i think to a certain extent it's good to be proactive but should she be putting herself out there to this extent I think of Spider-Man and him just being focused on what he has to complete and, you know, what he believes is right and everything like that and sticking to his code. And, of course, there are many naysayers, right? And very few people that support him. And he he may gripe about them or, or make sarcastic remarks about the fact that he... You know his old Parker look, and and no one likes him, and oh, there the cops are going after him again. But he doesn't he doesn't try to change that. He just does what he has to do, and he he doesn't go out and and try to publicize that he is a good guy, because uh, I think he's just fighting against the system. And I I almost just want Babs to be focused on her fight. You know, she doesn't necessarily need to be Batman where you know she's staying in the shadows and everything because I think it is it is a different era and it's it's a Batgirl I think you know being more positive is going to be in the light more but I almost wish that she could show or or gain a reputation just by her deeds rather than you know being out there and, and having this profile and I think maybe there's just too much immersion into the culture there so I was just thinking about that that show people who you are by by your deeds and, and, and how you talk and everything, and, and they will they will trust you or um, look up to you rather than, you know, forcing yourself <laughs> upon them and creating this this image uh, forcibly. So those are my thoughts on that. Batgirl loses her cowl, and I'm not sure how that actually happened. I guess maybe when she fell into the water it just got pulled off by the pressure, but I do wonder why she would ask Kadir. I mean, she was the one who made it so that seemed like a weird statement to make. Something when I, was, when I was reading the synopsis, I thought about the EMP that she uses on the car reminds me of one of the gadgets that were used in Fast and the Furious. And I'm thinking it was Fast and Furious, well, Fast 6 that it was used. Yes, I do believe so. Just where it, like, you know, stops the car down. Uh, I don't know if it was an actual reference to that, but I just thought about, about it. Okay, let's talk about Dagger for a little bit. So there is a dagger there's a controversy surrounding this and I don't think I want to get into the the controversy itself uh because there are some things that I I don't necessarily agree with but uh there it's just a dangerous it's it's a dangerous territory I think I uh I like I said I was very shocked about you know, that it was, it was this guy, right, that was dressed up as her. And I think that for the story, that, you know, it, it didn't turn me off of the story. I thought that it was an interesting twist, something I did not expect. I liked it for that, just that, you know, this villain um, that was basically trying to, to boost his own reputation and become Batgirl and, and take the other one down. I thought was interesting, and, and, of course, just this artist. The one thing I will comment on about the, the controversy is that I know the word transgender had been thrown around, and I feel like he wasn't transgender, but I think he was just, in this respect, uh, a transvestite, and I, I think that it it wasn't his lifestyle, but it was the fact that this is what he was told to do, and that's, you know, he used those means. I do find it... Uh, Interesting, though, that I wonder if you would have, obviously, the art. It'd be interesting to compare side by side his face unmasked with the face that was under the cowl. But you think that you would at least be able to tell that, in fact, you know, that is a man. I, I think the the bulge is easily taken care of with an athletic cup. But just the face, I think you would, you know, the chin and everything, you'd be able to tell. Like I said, I, I, just, I thought it was interesting. It was a twist. And I think that, that is all I'm going to say on the Dagger controversy there. Okay, here's the big thing. My guess on who the big bad villain is. My one guess could be an obvious one. James Gordon Jr. He is somebody that has it out for Barbara to a certain extent. If we are continuing off of the Gil Simone run, we know that he wanted to take care of her of his own accord rather than, you know, Nightfall. He wanted Nightfall to leave his sister for him. We haven't seen him yet, so that's a curious absence, and he would know about her personal injury. So I think that's the, the more obvious choice. However, If he is the big bad in Eternal, and I mean the big, big bad, because Hush we thought was the big bad, but then was revealed it wasn't really. He's following some orders. Would they use him here too? Is he double dipping? Second guess, which actually makes me very uneasy, is that it's Dinah Lance. Dinah has, uh, as we have seen, she's got some problems with Barbara, A little over the top, if you ask me. I mean apologies, money, replacement of, of things, maybe not killing people. But if her goal is to bring down her reputation, if she was laughing at those art images, if she refused to pick up ignored texts of help from Babs and she knows also of the personal injury to Baz for being in a wheelchair, these signs all point to her potentially being the big bad. If that were to happen, I think I would be upset, mainly because I don't like heroes, and Dino Lance is one of my favorites to be turned into villains. I'm sure she'd try to explain her way out of it and say something like, well, it's all getting back. You know, I never meant any harm. I was just getting back and losing all my stuff. I think that's it. I mean, I don't know if I blew your mind or not, but those are my thoughts. Uh, When I saw the cover, this is the last thing, just in the solicits, I didn't like it. I I thought to myself, oh no, this is the third issue. I don't like this cover. Because it just wasn't Babs, but I was certainly surprised at the villain. And uh, I think it fits obviously with what goes on within. So you can never, you know, judge a book by its cover. It's certainly true here. And I noticed that they are getting more flamboyant. And I really tried to think of a better word than flamboyant, but I think that gets at the heart of it. I don't mean any uh, disrespect to any people's groups. Flamboyant in the fact that just like very showy and ostentatious in their manner and uh, have. Their modes, I think, too. Their modus operandi and, and all this, which I don't think points to the big bad. I think that their ostentatious nature goes is, is opposite to the big bad person. And uh, I also perhaps think that this is a commentary on what the big bad thinks of Babs as Batgirl, that she thinks that she is also ostentatious and um, getting a little too big for her britches and trying to knock her down to size. So some clues and hints there. I'm going to give this 8.5 out of 10 bats. And our final book, Gotham Academy, number three, The Ghost in the North Hall. Writers Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher, Art Carl Kerschel, Color Geyser Misesen, and Sergey Lapointe. In detention, Olive Silverlock reluctantly explains why she's there to her companion Colton Rivera, who is there thanks to her. She neglects to tell him that she was involved in a fire that she caused. While evading Miss Harriet's glares, Colton warns Olive that she will have to be his lookout when he breaks into the headmaster's office to steal back the supplies she got him busted for. They are startled in their conspiracy by a scream from her roommate Lucy who claims to have seen a ghost. Angrily, Pommeline points out the specter and warns that it was Olive's intervention the night before that ensued that the ghost of Millie Jane Cobblepot would go unbound. As Lucy faints into her arms, Olive expresses incredulity. Pommeline claims that it was she who summoned the ghost with her Order of the Bat, a secret society. Before Olive can ask why anyone would want to bring Millie Jane Cobblepot back from her, her grave, Pommeline shushes her as they eavesdrop on the headmaster who warns Professor Milo to keep the secret of the North Hall quiet. Turning to Olive, Pommeline whispers that she should meet her in the study hall after class tomorrow and bring Millie's diary. Olive meets her there with the book, on the condition that Pommeline never says anything about her mother again, or wear that back costume. Pommeline promises, admitting that Olive's failure to snitch on her despite a week of detention has earned her that much. Olive spreads the book open, explaining that none of the handwritten notes inside it suggest a connection between Millie Jane and the North Hall, which may not even have been built in Millie's time. She notes that her friend Mapp saw something in the North Hall on the day of the opening assembly, and Lucy claims to have seen the ghosts more than once outside of her dorm room, Pommeline wonders if maybe she raised the wrong ghost. Millie's grave, after all, was unmarked. Olive worries that maybe Millie Jane didn't go insane as they'd been taught, but knew too much. In any case, who, the girls wonder, was buried in Millie Jane's grave. The pair are interrupted by Pommeline's boyfriend, Heathcliff, and Pommeline becomes frustrated when he doesn't pay any attention to her. He wonders what he did wrong when she stalks off. Olive promises that it's not his fault, but wonders why he's involved with her Order of the Bat at all. He admits that he's doing it for her, Olive assures him that he's a good guy and agrees to help him with his history homework again if he ever needs it. Just then, Kyle knocks on the wall next to them for attention, begging a moment alone with Olive. Kyle takes her down to the river and admits that he misses her and wonders why she seemed to lose interest in their relationship after summer. He promises not to push her to tell him what happened, but he does want to know. Olive finally admits that her mother's been in the hospital for a while, and that hospital collapsed over the summer, i.e. Arkham Asylum, which collapsed in Batman Eternal. She's now in a coma, and the doctors have told Olive that she may never wake up again. Reluctantly, Olive admits that she still cares about him, but Kyle can tell that she wants space. He states that he will be there for her if she needs it, telling her that he won't mind if she breaks his heart, but she had best not break Map's heart, too. Afterwards, Olive returns to the dorms and is surprised suddenly by Mapps, who insists that after missing the ghost sighting the day before, she will not miss it again. She drags Olive to a tent out on the roof, explaining that she has charted every ghost sighting so far, cross-referencing with the reliability of the witnesses. While Mapps talks, though, Olive spots a pin for the band that Heathcliff likes on the ground and grows suspicious. Mapps explains that the ghost has only been sighted in the North Hall and the dorm so far, and Olive reminds that the teachers know something is up with the North Hall as well. Looking through her binoculars, Olive spots the handsome boy from the library the week before reading under a statue. She wonders what he's reading and is surprised when he turns the cover toward her, as if he'd heard. She is started away from him by Maps, who has spotted a pair of glowing eyes looking at them from the boarded windows of the North Hall. The girls insist that they have to get inside and from nearby, Palmline f- interjects that she agrees and she knows just the man for the job. The next day, Maps delivers an invitation for Colton to meet them at the fountain at midnight. Interested, he shows up. Before long, Colton has the front doors unlocked and flings them open for the first time since last summer. As she looks around, Olive realizes that she's been in the North Hall before and experiences an unpleasant flashback of the place in flames, with the shadow of the Batman flitting through them. Pommeline tries to snap her out of it. And Olive warns them that they need to leave. Something is in there with them. Pommeline is unmoved, reminding them that it is probably Millie Jane, and endeavors to show her an interesting painting of Nathan Cobblepot that she found. They are called away, though, by Colton, who has found a hole in the floor. Maps notices that the hole is old, but the damage to the floor around it is new. The floor is surrounded by markings. As Pommeline tries to take pictures of them with her phone, she accidentally drops it, and she's fine to just let it go. But Olive can't, and reaches into the hole after it. But something grabs her arm. Dun dun dun! Well, I like that we continue with characters from Batman's mythos. We've got Harriet, and Milo is actually named here. And I'm still thinking that Colton likes Olive, and he even mentions her breakup with Kyle. Even though I did try to dissuade Donovan from comparing this book with Harry Potter, I will say that the image of the girl screaming reminded me of the girl who gets cursed and screams in the half-blood prince. So tell me if you agree or not. I like seeing Olive and Pommelheim putting aside their distaste for each other and actually working together civilly. I think that they won't exactly be friends, but if they can get along like this, I will certainly be satisfied. Heathcliff is an interesting character and I'm not exactly sure what to do with him and Uh First they're all over each other and obviously in the secret society uh, and he does this ritual for her and now she gets all bent out of shape after he shows interest in music. I think it's uh, a little inconsistent or it just shows how sensitive high school girls can be in relationships but uh, it seems like something may be afoot with him if, if that's in fact his button that all have found perhaps it's all a hoax and he's walking around in a costume. Who knows? Speaking of relationships, I'm glad that Olive and Kyle finally talked because I wondered how long, how long is she going to avoid him? She tells him the truth, and it's clear that they both still have feelings for each other. And I do like Kyle's concern for his sister. I love all the research that MAPS does, and, you know, we really get a reason why she's called MAPS. And then the little camp out, just really cute. And what's fun about this issue is the mystery solving that the, the group is doing and just that they're they're smart about it mystery blonde guy more of a mystery who knows i loved maps doing parkour in the parking lot to get colton a note kind of a ninja just to slip that to him i don't know how she knew he was under the car and what is he doing under the car who knows and of course what's a teenage mystery thriller without a trip to a haunted house i'm glad they're finally going inside the north wing and we get more pieces of olive since we have or she has visions and remembers being there I certainly saw truth and reflection of what Pomeline says about her phone and some of my students, and even what Olive says and does. It's just totally believable difference between the haves and the have not. You have no idea how many things of enormous value we find like clothing-wise in the lost and found, and then you know you advertise, hey, we're getting, we're bringing this lost and found to the salvage army, and you've got Gap and like J. Crew stuff in there. It is ridiculous. And then I flash back to one of student who who lost her book somewhere, and uh, certainly like not on the she is not in that upper echelon of, of wealth there and you know very concerned and looking around and, and finding it so just the the difference between you lose something you may not care about it and someone who who does lose something and care about it i i saw that in pamela and olive and of course olive i believe is on scholarship so there you go so the question is what grabbed olive uh, could it be millie a monster we saw you know there was that creepy eye on issue number one maybe killer croc who knows I enjoy the issue, not only with the mystery, but with the personal interactions that Olive has with different people. And I think from these interactions, you learn more about her. And we're really just starting to to get a sense of who she is now. And and some pieces of the puzzle that is Olive are really clicking together. I'm going to give this 8.5 out of 10 diplomas. Now over to Chris for the Batman 66 review.
4: Hey, thanks, Stella. Happy 2015 to you, and a happy 2015 to all our Bat listeners out there, whether first time or long time. I hope your 2015 has gotten off to a great start and that you and everyone has a fantastic year. As Stella said, I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 titles. I'm glad to be with you today. Thanks for downloading, and as always, thanks for not fast-forwarding. I commented on three books last month, but this month there is only one book on my docket. But it has two stories, and that book is Batman 66, number 18, cover dated 2015. The first story is entitled The Sheriff of Crime, written by Tom Pyre and art by Dave Bullock. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laura Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. This particular story, quite some time ago. Our story opens on a serene morning at Gotham City Police Headquarters, where we find Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara ready to show Batman and Robin the new GCPD crime-fighting teletype machine. However, they enter the room and find it stolen. Robin finds a discarded arrow left behind, and Batman ascertains that this was the work of their old foe, the Archer, who wastes no time showing off his latest acquisition at an underworld lounge, which was labeled as such. Meanwhile, down in the Batcave, Batman and Robin deduce that if the teletype got in the wrong hands, a crime wave would ensue. So, Batman challenges the archer to a jousting duel at Gotham Park via the Gotham Gazette. At the next dawn, a joust commences. The archer tries to use knockout gas on Batman to no avail. Robin states that Batman can hold his breath for 22 minutes. What? And while The jazz continues, a wall is built around the area to ensure the villains would not escape, as the Commissioner has since declared war on crime, and this culminates in a, with a bat fight and our heroes victorious. The great Art Carney portrayed the Archer on the 1966 Batman TV series. He passed away at age 85 in 2003. Now, I suspect the powers of DC were unable to use his likeness, as he has a mustache in the comics, but he didn't have one on his TV appearances. I thought Dave Bullock did a great job with the artwork. There was a nice job with the fighting sound effects in old English style, just like the TV show. I liked that the Archer's same mall from the TV show Made Marilyn was used. I did like Pyre's use of what was the equipment of the day, the teletype. However, I never really got a handle on the Archer's motive for using it, and it didn't seem to be clearly explained. Now, while there were some elements of a decent story with the usual trappings, I thought this story just laid a bit flat for me. So let's see what the next story holds. Bats, Books, and Crazy Crooks was written by Jeff Parker with art by Richard Case. At Gotham Public Library, Barbara Gordon announces that the library will be closing in 10 minutes. And before the doors can close, the bookworm enters and starts to blind the patrons with his lamp from his trick hat. Barbara asks what he wants, and the bookworm proposes to trade a book the very first book he ever stole, beginning his life of crime, for the library's rarest book, The Cleo Veritas, a book from 1743 full of occult knowledge. Barbara dashes off to a hidden section of the building, changes into Batgirl in a scene reminiscent of the unaired Batgirl pilot. The bookworm reads the book, and some words come out of his mouth that sound like Yvonne Craig, Adam West, Burt Ward, and some fighting sound effects. Just then... Batgirl appears, and the bookworm then casts a spell, changing his book and henchmen into giant purple silverfish, who love to eat paper, but will settle for devouring Batgirl. Batgirl leaps and dodges the monster, and manages to invoke a spell herself, conjuring the bookworm and the creatures right back into the book itself. Roddy McDowell played the bookworm to perfection on the 1966 TV series. McDowell, who also voiced the Matt Hatter on Batman the Animated Series, passed away in 1998 at age 70. I thought that Case's artwork was outstanding, and it's been so long since we've had a Batgirl appearance. Now, as for the story itself, there were some great touches which made up for the ending that I had a hard time with. And Batgirl dating this fate on a foe, while perhaps fitting, just seemed a bit out of character with a woman whose father is a police commissioner and foregoing due process. Over on the TBU website, Ryan Blair gave this story 4.5 out of 5. When I found out that this issue would have two stories, I was a bit worried that we were in store for filler-slash-backup material for both. I then recalled a time when comic books had at least two stories, way back even going to late as the early 80s with such titles as Detective Comics, thinking maybe it won't be as bad this time around, but yes, both these stories just did not do much for me. I'd like to see a well-crafted story that incorporates some gadgetry, some humor, and an interesting death trap, or at least something that resembles a decent cliffhanger. I just don't think we've had enough of those kind of stories since this series began. With a lackluster Archer story, but a halfway decent story with a long overdue appearance by Batgirl and a good cover by the Allreds, Reds, the cover reminding me of a pick of Yvonne Craig reading that issue of Detective Comics where her Batgirl uh, character debuted, I'm giving Batman 66 only 6 out of 10 bats. What foggy villains will blow into the next issue of Batman 66? What arch-villain will become a hero in a future issue of Batman 66? Which deadly skeletal villain with Japanese ties comes to Batman 66? These and other perplexing ponderables to be answered next time. Same Stella time, same Stella sight.
3: Next up is Babs in the Tube. Remember, this is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film, and currently I am watching the 1977 New Adventures of Batman TV series. So this was episode 4, A Sweet Joke on Gotham, which was actually not... Uh, a well-liked episode by many air date was March 3rd 1977 starring Adam West as Batman slash Bruce Wayne, Burt Ward as Robin slash Dick Grayson, Lou Scheimer as Batmite and the Batcomputer, Melody Britt as Batgirl slash Barbara Gordon Lenny Wayne Rib as Commissioner Gordon and Sweet Tooth. Sweet Tooth, a sugar-obsessed villain, breaks into Gotham City's water supply and replaces all the water there with chocolate syrup Batman attempts to deal with the criminal, but is pressured by his ever-increasing insane demands. Batman has to restore the water supply to the city before time runs out. Take a listen.
1: Greetings, Batfans. This is Batman. And Robin, the Boy Wonder. And me too, Batmite. Welcoming you to the new adventures of Batman. Watch us wage our never-ending battle of good versus evil.
2: Ride with us as we chase the greatest array of villains the world has ever seen,
1: proving that crime does not pay. Get set for thrills and action. Join me, Batman. And me, Robin the Boy Wonder.
2: And Batgirl. And me too, Batmite. In the super new adventures of Batman.
1: Together to see this.
0: What is it, Commissioner?
1: This is a special Valentine from the Sweet Tooth.
2: Happy Valentine's Day, Gotham City. <laughs> I couldn't let this day go by without a token of my appreciation. <laughs> As you read this, a sweet treat is coming your way. Oh, no need to thank me. I'm just a sweet guy. <laughs> Sweet Tooth can only mean sour things for Gotham City. Today, we're really going to show Gotham City. (laughs) Hey, what's your job this time, Sweet Tooth? Observe, and you shall see. This is chocolate syrup. I control the entire water system with this electronic computerized lock.
0: Ah.
2: I've just turned the entire Gotham City water supply into chocolate syrup. <laughs> yeah. 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 If they want it, they'll have to pay me dearly. <laughs>
1: Sweet Tooth has kept us waiting for six hours now. That must be some prank. Holy tooth decay, Bruce. This is chocolate syrup. So this is Sweet Tooth's treat.
4: The damage is already being done, Bruce. Look.
1: Looks bad for Gotham City. Our children could be ruining their teeth and their health. We better get on this case, Robin. Ready, Batman. me the bat oil robin check batman
2: hi batman
1: batmite what are you doing there
2: i'm ready to go with you and robin when do we leave
1: this is serious business batmite
2: you always say that (coughs) see batman i can be just like you Uh (laughs) (coughs) uh-oh
1: you did it again batmite
2: Sorry, Fat Man. I didn't mean it. I, I was only trying to help.
1: You've helped enough for one day, little fella. They
2: never appreciate
1: we don't have too much time. What the blazes? That blasted Batmite? Batman,
2: look! Holy heavy rocks,
1: Batman. That thing would have hit us for sure. I know, Robin. And we only have the Batmite to thank. The little fella appeared to give us a warning. But that's not the way to do it.
2: What would they do without me? It's a giant, soft, caramel candy,
1: Batman. Obviously from Sweet Tooth. There's a note. I'm up here, suckers. That's
2: right. Up here, suckers. (laughs)
1: Let's see what our sweet friend wants, Robin.
2: you came i love suckers
1: <laughs> Don, what are you up to sweet tooth
2: if you want your water back tell your commissioner it'll cost five million dollars that's a heck of a lot of jelly beans exactly
1: we know you've sealed your chocolate water system with an electronic combination lock if you know what's good for you you'll give up the lock and turn yourself in I personally guarantee a light sentence.
2: <laughs> Don't sweet talk me, Batman. Prison will do you good. You can learn a trade, something you can get your sweet tooth into. That's not funny, boy Blunder. Just for that, my ransom is now up to 10 million.
1: <laughs> You're impossible to deal with, sweet
2: tooth. I wouldn't come any closer if I were you. The ledge you two are standing on is nothing more than a graham cracker. <laughs> He's not kidding, Batman. We're gonna... Whoa! Save me some crumbs, fellas.
1: <laughs> Keep cool, Robin. Remember our gymnastic routine. Right. Activate the battle pump.
2: doing batmite you see i told you i could do dangerous jobs great balls of gravity batman
4: the little fellow's in trouble
1: easy boy wonder I didn't find that very amusing, Batmite. You
2: only succeeded in
1: letting Sweet Tooth escape.
2: I'm sorry, guys. I was only trying to help. I did save you guys from that candy caramel before. Yes, we appreciate that.
1: Now what about Sweet Tooth? I think we should check with the DA's office and see what Barbara has on Sweet Tooth. I programmed the Z-7000 to find Sweet Tooth's biggest weakness.
0: As you ask, Sweet Tooth's biggest weakness.
1: Three ounces of flour, a cup of sugar, six ounces of chocolate, a pound of marshmallows, some fudge jelly. Sounds like a recipe. And <laughs> a cookie? Not just a cookie, a chocolate fudge marshmallow jelly cookie.
2: That's it. We trap Sweet Tooth with chocolate fudge marshmallow jelly cookies. Uh, don't you think you can use some help from that girl?
1: Good idea. Now, listen carefully. I've got a plan.
2: I sure hope this works.
1: Don't worry, Batgirl. We've got the right bait. All we have to do is reel in the fish.
2: This is it, gang. The ransom money is in that box. <laughs> not only the ransom money, but chocolate fudge marshmallow jelly cookies. Oh, how did they know? Holy hoax, Batman. He fell for it. Sweet Tooth, as assistant district attorney, I demand that you surrender the computer lock to your water system. (laughs) No chance. Well, then you can plan to spend quite a long time in this cell. It all depends on what you mean by a long time. (laughs) Why, it's a giant gumball. (laughs) So long, suckers. Guards, guards. Sweet-toothed, loyal kids always seem to lower themselves to the occasion. Now that criminal is on the street again. I'll phone Batman and Robin.
1: The crime computer has set up hidden cameras in the underground water system. Something's up, Batman. There's the computerized luck we have to get. I guess it's true that crooks always return to the scene of the crime.
2: (laughs) We can't let Gotham City run dry, can we? This supply of chocolate syrup will last another
0: month.
2: (laughs) Hey, look, sweet tooth. I lost another one. A few more and I'm gonna look just like you. (laughs) Oh, handsome devil.
1: (laughs) It's our job to stop this ridiculous prank.
2: Aren't you guys forgetting someone?
1: What now, Batmite?
2: Tell me, guys. Am I the classic private eye?
1: Looks more like the classic bloodshot eye.
2: Oh, come on. Let me go along. Please.
0: I'll be good, I promise.
1: Sorry, Batmite, but it's no go.
2: Have it your way, but you're gonna hear from me. We can catch him, Batman.
1: If Sweet Tooth is there, we can catch him. The fat boat cannot run anything on water. Cut the engine so we can surprise them. It's going to take a perfect throw to pick that computer lock out of Sweet Tooth's hand.
2: Now we got you, Sweet Tooth. Oh. The rang. it almost got my computer lock. I smell a rat man. We better get out of here fast.
1: That's no computer lock, Batman. No, that's just a pest. Let's go, we can still catch him.
2: Give up, sweet tooth. No way, Blunderboy! If you're so tough, catch me! <laughs> Time for a trick, gang. Super submerging submarine, Batman. Did you see that?
1: Yes, I saw that. Sweet Tooth is full of surprises.
2: Oh, yoo-hoo! Anchors away, Batman! <laughs> out
1: of those two It's some kind of oil slick robin
2: Holy banana splits it's marshmallow topping batman No wonder it's sticking to the engine <laughs> You can't have a sunday without nuts
1: Let's try to fly this thing out of here robin
2: I almost forgot the cherry. Oh, I'll never eat another sundae again. There has to be some way we can sneak that computerized lock away from Sweet Tooth.
1: I think this calls for an inside job, Dick. What do you mean, Bruce? I want you to go undercover. (gasps) Me? Yes. It's too risky for you to go it as Robin. They'll know who you are for sure. If you go as Dick Grayson, you slip in as one of Sweet Tooth's kids. It's worth a try. I think this can work, Dick. Here's what we do. You look perfect for the part. If you get in trouble, contact me over your wrist radio. Right.
2: Listen, class. This is the Nutty Chocolate Factory. (laughs) By Tuesday, it will be all ours. How can they keep eating this
1: stuff? Sweet Tooth is planning to hit the Nutty Chocolate Factory on Tuesday.
2: Can you hear me, Batman?
1: We hear you, Dick. What about the computer lock for the water system? Where does he keep it? Working on it.
2: Are you there?
0: Right here, Dick.
2: I think I found where he keeps a computerized lock. Good work, Dick. Who told you to clean the storage room, kid? Uh, no one. I I just thought I'd clean it. Ah, no kid of mine has half those teeth. Boy, you certainly lost some weight, didn't you? Uh, well, I, uh... You know who we've got here, boys? Who, Bush? This is Dick Grayson, Bruce Wayne's (laughs) ward. That's ward. This guy's working undercover for Batman and the Commissioner. (laughs) Where are you taking me? Uh, I...
1: Dick's in real trouble. I've got to save him. I think it's about time for the old rope trick. Good to me you again.
2: Don't worry.
3: I won't get in the way.
1: I wish I could believe you (laughs) Dick Dick can you hear me? Are you all right?
2: I knew you'd show. If you don't get here soon, I'm going to turn into a chocolate bar, wrapper and all. Don't worry, old buddy.
1: You go in there and keep them occupied, Batmite, and stay invisible.
2: Check. And then, (laughs) we'll all be rich. Ow.
1: bed perfect timing couldn't let my best friend turn into a gooey chewy how'd you like to be robin now dick i thought you'd never ask oh it
2: must be some kind of a curse well look who's here <laughs> well you're on my home court now
0: batman
2: Down nuts, fellas. (laughs) This way, Batman, the computer lock.
1: That's what we came for.
2: (laughs) Good work, Dynasty. Duo, you're right, where I want you. Leaping licorice
1: Batman. I can't seem to get free from these things. <laughs> Have a good trip, fellas.
2: You'll both make tasty taffy.
1: <laughs> hey, cool, Robin, a little taffy can't hurt us. you're finished
2: oh yeah <laughs> says oh look out you guys
1: time to stop this foolishness <laughs>
2: Hey, sweet, too. We're getting clapped. Oh, let's try to eat our way out of it. I can't eat anymore. I'm sick of this stuff. Hey, me too. Nice work,
1: Batman. Couldn't have done it without you, Batgirl.
2: What about me? Did you see me? We saw you. You did fine. So, Batman, you did it. Well, it must be a sweet victory for you. What are you gonna do with us?
1: First of all, you're all going to the dentist. Then you'll go to the Gotham City Detention Center and have plenty of time to think about what you've done. I'll attach this computer lock to the main valve. That should open it.
2: We did it! I'll tell the Commissioner to start pumping fresh water in right away.
1: Once again, teamwork paid off.
2: What about me? I helped too.
1: What would we do without you? little fella <laughs>
0: <laughs> that message
2: boy I'm sure glad we're rid of him he really gave us a tough time
1: and he almost ruined the health of those kids that's right we caught you again what do you have to say for yourself this time
2: I am man. know what Not much.
3: Next up, we have. Would you believe? Shipper spotlight. I love shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let me tell you about shippers. (laughs) Not talking. Get over. Get get over your own shipping bullshit. Shipper. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Stop talking about that. <laughs> shippers. Ship, ship, shippers. I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick, Dick, Dick and Babs. Batman and Cat, Catwoman.
0: There we go. for the shippers, Batman's Marinary to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien, Seth, Seth, Seth. Any shippers, I'll kill them. Dick
3: and Bats. It's been, uh, I was about to sing that song, it's been one week, it's been at least a year since we've had a Shipper Spotlight. So, remember that I give you a couple, first hint of romance, their history, and then, hey, are they hot or not? And this couple, I was thinking about it recently, Jason Todd and Donna Troy. First hint of romance? Well, the first, or second question out of pre-crisis Jason's mouth when he first met Dick was... What's Wonder Girl really like? Now, their first interaction was in New Teen Titans number 20. Jason Todd joins a group of interim Teen Titans formed by Wonder Girl. Well, Donna is six or so years older than Jason, so obviously nothing's going to happen, but you see a real connection between them form, and Donna respects Jason enough to admit that he was right and apologizes and in spite of the age difference. She, she doesn't condescend to him, and their interaction ends in a hug. Aww. Jason also pretty obviously formed something of a crush on Donna. Jason also obviously formed something of a crush on Donna in this era, with one particular quote standing out, "'Whisper my name and I'll follow you anywhere.'" So then we get to them as adults. Obviously the fact that they both came back from the dead creates something of a unique bond between them. And at the start of countdown, they meet again at Duella Dent's funeral. Jason hides until all the Teen Titans have left except Donna Troy. Jason tells her what happened the night of Duella's death about the Dueling Monitors. He knows that both he and Donna have come back from the dead even already deducing that his resurrection has something to do with Alexander Luther Jr.'s plans involving Infinite Crisis. And later, a Monitor recruits Jason and Donna, and later Kyle Rayner, for a mission to the Palmerverse, a section of the Nanoverse discovered by Ray Palmer, in an attempt to find Palmer. Jason seems to have a romantic interest in Donna and is shown to be visibly disgruntled by her interactions with her ex, Kyle Rayner. Donna believes in Jason, but also calls him out on his crap if, if it is deserved. Plus, who else does Jason let hug him? Probably no one. But I've seen a couple hugs between Jason and Donna through the years. So hot or not, I'm going to say hot for this one. I always ship them throughout Countdown, believe it or not, when I saw the interactions between the two of them. I thought, get rid of that Kyle Rayner guy. Jason and Donna together, for sure. Next up, and finally, it's my literature recommendation. I'm currently reading. I'm, I'm actually very done. By the time this airs, I'll be done. The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. So it's a story about, and there was a movie that came out, and. Uh, 2005 maybe something like that maybe a little bit later it's a story a love story about a man with a genetic disorder that causes him to time travel unpredictably and about his wife an artist who has to cope with his frequent absences and dangerous experiences so very it's it's very interesting uh very you know sci-fi romance so fantasy certainly the time traveling is a bit of a mind boggle and you kind of have to just go along with it Uh, usually each of the chapters or sections start off with the date and then how old henry is and then how old claire is and sometimes henry is like 43 and 18 so he is time traveling and things like that and there are some moments that i think don't jive together like continuity wise some things happen where he doesn't does he not remember that this happened so and I just came across something recently just that if he uh I it's just it's hard for me to explain without spoiling lots of things but it's just weird how you find out later that he traveled to a time but when that time happens how could he not have known about other stuff that had happened so it's just it's one of those mind-boggling Thing So you kind of have to go with that Time travel messes things up anyways It It is very confusing Well that's it That is it Can you believe Shipper Spotlight returned Someone cried out recently on Twitter To bring back reading with Stella I don't know what I would do though I'll have to think about it But right now Shipper Spotlight is here For how long I don't know But there it is Remember to send any questions or comments to batgirl to oracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backroll. oracle And like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well. If you're interested to, uh, to write or r- report on different things, write editorials, review comics, uh, report on news happenings, be sure to go over to the Batman universe because Dustin is always looking for people and there's just a banner that says uh, we need you for TBU and just click on it and, and join the join the fun. Join the fun. Come come be with us. Come be with us. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Take care out there. The Arctic blast happened. I actually ran six miles in the Arctic blast. I wasn't going to. And then I thought to myself, well... I'm seeing some kids out there, hey, that guy's got shorts on, I'm going to go out there, even though it was, the wind chill was bringing it down to like 10 degrees. It was actually fine, the last mile was uh, that, um, yeah, that was, it was starting to get windy and my chin was frozen, I couldn't feel it, and then, you know, after you, your nose is dripping for so long, it starts to get chapped, so that hurt, but hey, I made it, made the Arctic blast. Okay, until next time